You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. So welcome back to the podcast with myself, Oren Walker. This session is titled From Ruin to Recovery with Alistair McSorley. So what I wanted to do is speak with Alistair around his journey through pre-hospital care as a paramedic and then his uh, day in 2018 that changed his life forever and left him paralysed from the waist down. We're also going to be examining some of his tenacity, drive, the attributes that separate him from the crowd. So welcome to the podcast, Ali. Yeah, cheers, Owen. Good to see you. It's good to see yourself. So just for listeners, just to put into context, we actually worked on the psycho response unit together for a number of years um, in the mid to late to 2015, 16, I want to say. Yeah, um, 16, that, that 16 it was. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that was, that was cool, man. They were really good days. I mean, that was a fantastic job. I think for anybody that you know, likes pre-hospital care and likes bikes, it's just a marriage in heaven. It's the dream, absolutely the dream job. So yeah, absolutely. So we we very much worked together then uh, in the West End of London uh, on the psycho response unit. But what I'd like to do, Ali, is is maybe we'll revisit that, but just maybe start at the start actually, and just talk about your upbringing and your journey into pre-hospital care. Really. Um, so I'm, I'm I believe you were you brought up in Northern Ireland. Could you maybe just speak to that? Yeah, born and bred in Northern Ireland in uh, the late 80s, you know, just as the, the troubles were sort of calming down. And yeah, uh, fantastic parents, you know, who uh, sent me to an integrated school. Uh, so I was having a very balanced background from, from Northern Ireland. And through secondary school, uh, mucked around probably a little bit too much and you know, focused too much on sports. And again, cycling distracted by bikes rather than grades. Um, and then I, I went off to university in England, I went to University of Worcester, where I did a degree in sports therapy, um, got my BSc in that. And then I, I did an internship with a rugby team there for a year, which was, you know, really enjoyable, but sort of realized that sports therapy wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. Um, so I was looking at other options and I'd always wanted to be um, a paramedic. Um I find it really interesting. I knew of a few paramedics in Northern Ireland and through my, my dad, you know, who was a doctor and he's a pre-hospital response doctor with the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service uh, with basics. Um, and I, I just find that fascinating and sort of with him, you know, talking to me a little bit about everything and, and getting to know and seeing the other side of it. And then, you know, him doing a uh, doctor at the motorbike races as well. And I love motorbike racing, so I'd always go along to spectate, and you'd always see a little bit about what goes on with the medical team, and always that stuff, you know, was really appealing to me, and I find it quite fascinating. Um, so yeah, I decided after a year of working in in professional rugby to move on to the University of Portsmouth and do my my paramedic science degree, and never looked back since. You know, I loved it, fantastic career. So Ali, looking, you've mentioned your father. And you know his bearing on you growing up. Um, what, 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 how much of an influence did your father have on you? So you know he was very much into the uh, basic scheme, and indeed into uh, fast bikes, motorbikes, and 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 indeed was an emergency doctor himself. Did he have an overbearing on your sort of love of uh, of of bikes and sort of combining personal care with that? Um. That's where that's certainly where my exposure was to it. Um, there was never like any any pressure. Like 
parents were brilliant. They, they never pressured us to myself or my brothers to go down a specific route. You know, it was very much, you know, what do you enjoy studying or what do you enjoy doing? You know, that that's what we want to help you pursue in life. Um, and yeah, so like uh, both older brothers actually um, went on to become doctors. Um, and funny enough, like they, they've never had any interest in, in pre-hospital care, despite, you know, my, my dad. Uh, being involved so heavily in in pre-hospital care and my dad was sort of like quite revolutionary you know in terms that he helped to set up the basics program in Northern Ireland because there was really no pre-hospital uh, response model for for doctors and we're going back into you know uh, the 80s you know whenever uh, like the GP service like you know he was a GP and, and the phone would ring and it would be from you know the ambulance service or from uh, the fire service and like we've got a really bad RTC and you know prolonged entrapment could you come out you know and they'd go out and you know the rural GP would give morphine and it was at the stage when paramedics weren't carrying morphine um so dad would, would go out to a couple of these and start to think well like some doctors would go out administer the medicine and then that's their job done leave it leave it to the paramedics and the and the fire service to do the rest and dad dad was sort of noticing that actually we could do more for these patients you know like rather than just come out and you know be be like basically you know, an administrator of a medicine you know we can actually do quite a bit more here so and he he wanted to feel more comfortable uh going out to pre-hospital scenes as well so he discovered basics and he went over to the basics in in england to do the various courses and loved it and he came back so he started teaching rural gps you know what to do in terms of like scene management you know uh, and scene safety make them more comfortable approaching you know these quite badly injured patients you know and road traffic collisions um so he really developed that along with, with a couple of others and he was saying for years so i've just grown up uh, knowing that, you know, dad, you know, you know, the phone might go in the house at the middle of the night or he had a pager and it might go off and, you know, it'd be two or three in the morning and I'd be like 10 years old, you know, trying to get a good night's sleep before school and he'd be away off, you know, to, to try and help someone. Um, and that, you know, progress and progress and, you know, had a couple more doctors come onto this game in pre-hospital Northern Ireland. This is, you know, obviously we only recently got an air ambulance in Northern Ireland. So, um, you relied heavily on the voluntary services of the basics doctors to be able to go out and, you know, to be able to do advanced interventions, you know, and advanced medicines uh, to more modern day, whenever you know, the pre-hospital RSI became a much more regular feature in terms of care. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, like I just grew up with that. And there was the odd time, you know, dad might pick me up from school and, uh, you know, the, the pager would go off while we're in the car and, have to pull over and he'd put his wee green doctor light on top of the car and then next thing you know we're we're heading off and i would i'd be sitting in the car you know and at the, at the side of the road and you'd just see all the, all the emergency service vehicles and you know everyone's going down into this ditch you know to help somebody who's you know entrapped in a car in a hedge or something and i find that just fascinating you know i never once find that distressing or that i find it you know like odd or affecting me in a bad way and, and my dad was asking you always afterwards you know on the drive home he'd explain to me you know i'd have questions and i'd ask questions and he always answered them really honestly he never he never would sort of you know, dismiss it or or you know think that i was too young to know like he was, he was quite open and honest and explained things in a very delicate way as well and that's just got me me interested into into helping people and 
growing up, like I, I loved motorbikes. I thought motorbikes were, were really cool. So whenever he'd go to cover some motorbike events, I'd go along just to watch and, you know, just because I didn't have any friends that were into motorbikes or whatever. So it's just hanging out with my dad and the rest of the medical team there. And, you know, I'd be sitting there with a can of Coke with some chips and, you know, they'd disappear off to sort out an incident and come back and, you know, you'd see them there, you know, having their debrief and I'd just be like maybe a few meters back and, but I was just always interested as to what was going on and as to, as, as to what was happening. So it was like, I just, you know, I, I was never actively encouraged into it as such, but it was just my own, uh, my own desire that led me down that path, I suppose. And once I started getting into, you know, the, the sports therapy side of things and, and you're dealing with injuries and I found that I was really interested in uh, the injuries that were occurring on the rugby pitch, uh, you know, getting out there, assessing quick diagnosis, you know, and then saying, right, okay, can this player continue or what can we do now to help manage this person's, whether it's a neck injury or, you know, a severe concussion or, or something like that. And you'd work closely with the side, uh, the, the pitch side paramedics as well. And um, I'd love being able to, you know, like uh, phone my dad that evening, you know, after work and we'd talk about that, you know, and we, we'd bounce off each other um, from all of his experiences and then, and then what I was seeing. And then um, that, that just was fantastic. Once I went into the paramedic degree and I started doing my placements and I was able to, to chat away with him, you know, about what we were seeing. And he would just not only talk about what you're seeing, but he'd also like give you, that knowledge as well that, that, that you need, you know, as to, as to why a patient might've been presenting in a certain way. So like maybe they had a certain injury and said, okay, well, there's all these different types of complications, you know, that, that you'd be looking for with that. And, you know, I was just like a sponge feeding off them. So I kind of, I kind of felt like I had an unfair advantage amongst my students, just like a personal tutor, uh, just to learn from them. So, but yeah, all, all my exposure, I suppose, came via him. Um, and yeah, I just more more I was exposed to pre-hospital care. I found myself really interested in it, and I could see as well that it was a really developing career. Like you would see year on year when I go back to watch the motorbike races, that the team would do something maybe a little bit more or a little bit different each year, and you could I could almost see even as a child going into a teenager going to these races, and then you'd see and, and hear them talk about stuff that uh, you know things were developing in terms of the pre-hospital care and and you know this is like something that's quite interesting and there's always something changing and, and something new coming in uh so yeah like and and, and as well like i saw just the wider impact it had because the motorcycle racing community in northern Ireland is very small northern has a very small place so anything niche in it is going to be even smaller and you kind of get to know people the regular faces of the races and that whenever you know, somebody would have uh, a bad accent and um, then you'd see the reactions from that that rider's team and their loved ones that might be there watching, you know, and, and the distress it's caused. But seeing uh, the ease of that distress whenever they are aware that the medical team are working with that, that, that loved one, they immediately have like a confidence in the medical team and they started to calm down a bit and reassure themselves and then you know, like my dad or somebody from the medical team would come over and chat to them and explain things in a really good way. And then they're leaving that circuit to go to hospital, um, much more calm, much more positive. And then thinking, you know, right, okay, now we're informed. And seeing that de-escalation of emotions, uh, I thought was quite incredible. And I thought like that's something 
I'd love to be able to to do and and, and it looks really rewarding um and that that you're contributing something really meaningful to and those are sort of things that were uh, I suppose uh, attractive about about pre-hospital care to me as well um so yeah and and, and just once as I say once I get into the paramedics hands degree I, I just loved what I was doing so Ali what what year did you qualify and then when you once you did qualify um where did you get sort of the majority of your initial experience so I, I qualified in 2013 um um University of Portsmouth graduate and I stayed on in the city of Portsmouth and, and worked there for South Central Ambulance Service for a while. And I was loving it. It was a great place to cut your teeth. And I think, you know, to basically get your wings as, as a, a solo paramedic to get your autonomy. I think it's really, there's a lot of value in doing it, you know, where you, you practiced as a student because you know the area, you know the system, you know your colleagues and you know the hospitals and that allows you, uh, I think, the perfect place to grow as, as an individual paramedic um, rather than going straight out to somewhere new. And, you know, there, there's a lot of new things to adjust and adapt in different ways of working that you might not be used to. So that was great, you know, basically cut my teeth there. And then 2015, I actually went to London Ambulance Service. And it was it was a weird time to be going to London Ambulance Service because it was almost like a mass exodus of paramedics you know leaving LAS to go other places and you'd meet a lot of paramedics who were ex-LAS and oh you're mad you're mad the work up there it's too much you know that it's too busy you know this and that and you go up there and say well you know I feel like a salmon up river you know everyone else is coming the other way but I was going up there with a view that well I want to work in you know the biggest city one of the biggest cities in the world and one of the most advanced ambulance services in the world. And, you know, I want to test myself as a paramedic in London. I always was very, um, very aware that I didn't just want to be a paramedic in one place for a long period of time. I just, I could see that even as a student, there's just so much to do as a paramedic. There's so many different roles evolving. There is an introduction of master's courses, you know, uh, so many different types of critical care paramedics, you know, coming in and urgent care practice was developing and thought, yeah, like this is, this is a career I want to experience, you know, quite a lot of stuff as a paramedic. I don't want to just work in the one area, work in different places, you know, maybe specialize in something. Uh, so going to London was, was one of those things I really wanted to do. So I went up there in 2015 and I loved it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. You know, I met a lot, a lot of fantastic people in London. And you could see that the standard of care was very good. And, and to be able to work as well with all the different resources that the LAS has to it in terms of like, you know, the, the, the major trauma bypass network, you know, all the different critical care paramedics that were there, the, the AEPs. Um, and yeah, it was, it was class. You know, I thought it was really good. I enjoyed myself there. Um, you know, you're working with a lot of very different people, different skill levels. And that experience, you know, I think was something fantastic. I'd certainly encourage any new graduate um, paramedic to work in London for a while because I think the experience it gives you is, is second to none. And then obviously from there, you know, I went on to the cycle response unit in Central London and dream job, you know, loved it. 
so Ali, you joined the Cycle Response Unit in 2016. And um, how different was it working on the Cycle Response Unit versus an ambulance? What kind of versus like so the autonomy or indeed the, the kits that you were using and the different practices? How, how, how varied was it compared to working on ambulance? It was a whole different challenge. Um, you know, spent a long time in West London working on a double career ambulance and yeah, you just, you have everything there. Obviously you're transporting the patients to the hospital, but even still, you know, I, I was always one for, I, I never really believed in just taking patients to hospital. I wanted to make sure they're getting the right care and I was making decisions that was right for them. Uh, and, and, you know, quite often your know, hospital wasn't necessarily the, the right destination for that patient. So even though you have the means to take them there, doesn't mean you have to. Uh, so I'd always try and you know, do what I could for the patient. Um, but you have a luxury of, of absolutely everything there, you know, to be able to do, uh, to make sure you get a full and thorough assessment of, of a patient to be able to make decisions with confidence of evidence, um, getting on to the cycle response unit. Um, I, I think professionally, yeah, you got to adapt a little bit, um, you're still doing everything as a solo responding paramedic. I'd done plenty of FRU work before, so solo responding wasn't new to me. Um, but you, know, you have reduced bits of kit in terms of you know weight saving for carrying it on a bike. I mean, the bike was still pretty heavy. We had it was like eighty kilos in total. You know, with, with all the equipment that you're carrying um, and the, the front panniers and the rear panniers. But um, you know, the, the kit, you know, certainly your OBS kit, you know, you didn't have the, the luxury of an automatic, you know, life pack 15 to just press a button and get the blood pressure done. So you're, you're going old school and you've got the, your stethoscope out and you're trying to, you know, listen for the, the blood pressure and, and doing that in central London, you know, whenever you're on like the platform of a noisy tube line or middle of Oxford street or, or whatever, you know, and it's just so much noise and you're really having to zone in and, and, and trying to listen for things. So I think you're, your basic patient assessment skills became heightened uh, because you, you had less sort of mechanical assistance um, with that. And it was almost like your, your instincts came back to you a lot more as well. Like, like you go out and you, certainly your visual approach for the patient, you, you're taking more in and you're aware and you're already deciding, okay, well, they're presenting in this way. And, you know, they're sitting a certain posture and all those sorts of things are, are really triggering things off for you. But um no, uh, the cycle response unit, the, the kit, you know, was a bit reduced. So maybe you go out to a decent working job and then you would have to, you know, you'd use up some kit and you would have to go back to base to, to restock, you know, whereas on the ambulance, you've got enough kit to do you say maybe like eight to 10 good working jobs and you don't have to go back to restock. And, you, know, you have a limited supply of oxygen on there as well. So you go out to, to one patient with breathing difficulties you know, you could get through half a, half a cylinder of oxygen, you know, pretty quickly. Um, and if it was a cardiac arrest, you know, you would probably use the entire cylinder just as the ambulance is arriving to back you up. Um, so there was things like that. <clears throat> and, um, you know, that I, I knew sort of later on in my, my time in the CRU, whenever I was finding that there was maybe prolonged waits for for backup you know if you, if you go out and something's not for immediate backup you know you could be waiting for 40 to 50 minutes 
for an ambulance to arrive. And if you're, if you're having to use oxygen on a patient, quite often, you know, I would maybe limit things to 10 liters per minute, you know, just to try and reduce the flow so that I could space out the oxygen to last longer. And quite often, you know, that was the case and, and the patient, you know, incredibly well still on 10 liters as opposed to having on 15 and then you run out and then you're having to escalate things in terms of like a priority response because, you know, you, you've just wasted all your O2. Um, but I find, um, I find it fantastic. to be honest, not a lot of the CRU felt uh, like alien to me because I was a pretty accomplished cyclist, you know, cycling was a huge part of my life growing up and as competitive cyclist when I was younger and I'd competed for Ireland, um, you know, at international level uh, as, a, as a junior. And I'd done lots of, you know, big sort of endurance events on, on bikes and every day I, I was cycling, you know. But uh, when I started the CRU, like my, my lifestyle just became so much healthier and fitter. I moved up to London and then I was on this, you know, quite challenging working rota of being on relief in, in West London. And you have all your all your personal issue kit. So you've got a boot full of equipment in the car. And, you know, you only maybe get two or three days notice as to where you'd be working or what shift you'd be working, you know, and you got to drive, you know, all over, all over London. So. I was getting no exercise, mate. You know, just driving to work. You know, sitting in an ambulance and drinking, drinking flat whites where you, where you possibly can, and you know, sneaking too many donuts or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, once I started on the CRU, um, all your kit stays in the bike, so you don't have to drive it around. You're going in and out of the one base. So I was cycling to and from work. So I found I was cycling eight miles each way. And then, you know, you may be doing like a, a 10 or 12 hour shift on the bike in, in central London. And that's a whole mixture of just cruising around and then, you know, sprints, you know, to get to calls as quickly as possible. Uh, so within a month, I was probably the fittest I'd ever been. And that was that was brilliant. Like I felt fit and you, you know as well, like whenever you're feeling fit, you know, you feel healthy and everything feels positive and you're happier. And I noticed a huge improvement in just how much I was enjoying my life whenever I joined the CRU. Um, but yeah, the challenges of working alone, I find that you're having to make those informed decisions, you know, and you're, you're thinking a bit more outside the box as to how you can best suit that patient in terms of, you know, yeah, they need to go to the hospital, but not urgently. There's not really a whole by wrong with them, but they do have, you know, a wound on their wrist, you know, that, that will need suturing at an urgent care center. So, you're able to, you know, advise them, you know, uh, you patch them up there and then they're safe to go public transport or safe to go by taxi and you can sort that out for them and you know, you're able to save an ambulance, an unnecessary call out. So that ambulance can actually be used to transport somebody who needs the transport to hospital uh, with medics in the back. Um, and then also as well, I found that working in central London, that was, that was a bit of a, a change in what I was used to working in the centre and changes how hectic it was around you know central london is a mad old place um so much goes on and quite often as well the really high acuity stuff you were literally just around the corner from and you'd be on scene within one or two minutes you know and you could get really positive results with patients especially you know the sudden cardiac arrest just dropped in the street i mean i'm sure you've attended many yourself as well you know you get there and you can administer that shock real early and you get a very positive outcome and as well you know just I remember there was, there was one case I did for a, a, there was a construction site, a high-rise construction site, and um, there was an incident, a guy with a circular saw to the arm, and, you know, he was just, he was bleeding to death, you know, as soon as I arrived, but that rapid application of a tourniquet, you know, 
stops the bleeding um you know then you can get them to, to hospital very quickly and those things you know really uh provide positive outcomes for patients who you know otherwise uh, had they had to wait a couple of extra minutes it would most definitely have been a negative outcome so Ali, just let's fast forward to you leaving the CIU. So let's fast forward to 2017 when you when you left yeah. to go traveling um, around sort of the, the south, sorry, the North Island of, of, of New Zealand. Could you maybe just speak to the, the trip you took there around sort of cycling from the south of the North Island to the north of the North Island? Yeah, so I decided you know take a prolonged career break because uh, I didn't want like life just to be about work. I always wanted to do something pretty cool and kind of inspired by my brother. He he's one of these guys that's just puts his mind to something, do something incredible. So he he actually took time out of his career and he's cycled around the world uh, solo, uh, which is quite incredible. So I wanted to do something like that. Um, so he actually settled in New Zealand. So I decided to take some time out. Um, not just not just to go cycle. I was, I was loving the motorcycle medicine side of things, so I wanted to do more of that. And to be honest, it was like a full time job in itself. And balancing that alongside my career in in London, you know, was was very demanding on time. So I wanted to take time out to myself. So yeah, I went out there and uh, I flew out uh, New Year's Eve on 2017 from Dublin out to out to New Zealand and arrived there and it was just the most amazing summer like it was class out there arrived off the, off the plane 25 degrees and I built my bike up in Auckland airport and uh, was able to cycle to a mate's house where I stayed for a few days just to get you know jet lag out of the way and you get all my supplies sorted and then I went up to the very north tip of New Zealand in the North Island and then I set off cycling off-road just navigating my way um with with my tent and my supplies and all the way down to to wellington and then i ended up doing that a little bit quicker than what i thought i was going to do so i then went from from wellington up the east coast to uh, hawks bay and yeah so like, okay i'm just gonna hang out here for a bit and then you know just enjoy a bit of new zealand here you know off the bike and that was that was incredible man so like wild camping you know and it's just where there's nothing around you and you know that you're maybe like it's such a vast country and mountainous country like you know you're maybe two days away from the nearest shop or the nearest even the nearest person you know or maybe you might just bump into like a, a rural sheep farmer or something uh you know and people are really friendly you know full of chat keen to know like where you're from and then you know what you're doing and they're always kind of, I don't know, like pleased that you'd chosen to, to come and, you know, explore their country in a way. Um, people are so friendly. Oh, yeah, you know, if, if you want to throw your tent up in our front lawn, you know, feel free and, you know, we'll fill up your water bottles for you. And, you know, or, or even people are like, oh, we'll, we'll cook you dinner tonight and stuff. So that was really cool to get back to the, the basic pleasantness of uh, humanity, I suppose. Uh, so yeah, I did. Um, I ended up racking up about uh, just over three thousand kilometers cycling off road on my mountain bike. So I was feeling pretty fit. <laughs> and um, that's uh, that's back. certainly not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, yeah. So it was pretty challenging. There's a couple of days that were pretty brutal. You know, whenever just the the mountains, man, like New Zealand is, is uh, pretty steep in some of those mountains. Like, and it's tough old work. You know, with a heavy mountain bike and uh, you're always going to come across like challenges where you've got like mechanicals or you know something goes a bit wrong or then the elements turn against you you know and you've got just awful weather 
Um, but an amazing experience, you know, something something really made you, you know, evaluate life in a, a whole different perspective. Um, and just, but overall, just enjoyed the entire thing. So I came back to, to Northern Ireland to work in the motorcycle medicine and then to also do some work on the Isle of Man TT races. And the idea was at the end of the season, I'd go back out to New Zealand and pick up my bike and all my stuff, which I'd left, you know, at a friend's house in Wellington. And then I was going to head from Wellington to the very south point of the South Island. And then that would be like my, my cycle trip over. And then I was going to, to reevaluate things and whether I was going to look to stay in New Zealand and, and get a job there or, you know, end my career break and come back to, to London ambient service to work. But um, yeah, halfway through the motorbike season, uh, things took a bit of a turn. <laughs> yeah, so, so you, you complete the cycle from the North Island and then you return back to Ireland to start the bike season or indeed uh, be part of the bike season back in Northern Ireland. So, and when we say the bike season, it's responding on a motorbike as a medic, as your father did, um, as part of a team embedded within the races. Um, could you maybe just speak to the races? Could you speak to just even the culture and how big the culture of, uh, of, of, of riding uh, performance bikes in Northern Ireland is? And then indeed that, uh, that, sort of that fateful day in 2018. Yeah, so motorcycle racing in Northern Ireland, it's, um, it's a very strong, passionate uh, thing that, that, that's quite unique to, to the island of Ireland, really. But Northern Ireland have produced, like, we're such a small nation, yet over the decades, we've produced so many um, world-class motorcycle racers who have, have come from nothing, essentially. You know, like they don't have much in the way of, like, sponsorship backing or, or whatever or the infrastructure it's just I think because motorcycling is so passionate here um, and it's one of the very very few places in the world where uh, it's legal to to have roads closed and have a circuit on the public roads and, and have mass start races on the roads you know and it's uh, you know, people people from other countries see that and see it's so unique because they're only used to closed circuit racing which is purpose-built motorsports track um, whereas this, you know, all the elements are there, the, the lampposts, the hedges, the curbs, the trees, uh, the houses, uh, which, which people, people often get a bit freaked out by that you see these guys just blasting by somebody's front driveway, you know, <laughs> but it, it's, it's so unique and, and it's created quite a following because it, it, it is a very, um, adrenaline inducing sport, you know, not just for the competitors, but for those there watching, I mean, adrenaline is coursing through your your system as a spectator you know you're seeing spikes flying by and guys like they love to get set up for a day and then the hedges you know to, to poke out you know and watch these races and it is quite spectacular and you know vast majority of people will, will most likely have seen something on youtube somewhere along the lines of, of motorcycle races in ireland and it is a spectacular to a really spectacular scene um but it's usually passionate you know and, and guys like they just I think to become a road racer, it's it's what you are. You know, that's everything that you are. You know, you are a road racer, uh, and and every second of every day, these guys are doing something. You know, to do with the sport. You know, and and certainly like there's not much money in it at all. You know, so guys are literally you know working to go racing and uh, getting their bikes ready, getting everything sorted all year round. You know, 
the organizing clubs are preparing the circuits and you know um, they're campaigning to try and get the like road surfacing improved and always looking at ways to make circuits safer whether it's like removing some hedges you know or you know uh, what they can do and then they're having to work with you know farmers and, and residents you know to to see what they can do to make events run smoother um so it's it's such a thing and it brings a lot of people together as well like you know there's a huge amount of people here for family and friends within racing and it's uh, it's quite something the, the riders that do this sport um they're just hugely passionate about it you know it, it's what they do it's what they live for and if if they didn't do it then they wouldn't be themselves um so it, it's it's really quite something to go to just for for anybody to watch you know i think you you'd see guys you know racing from such humble backgrounds you know the vast majority of them are working flat out during the week uh probably doing some sort of trade you know to to not only put a roof over their head but just to go racing and they pack up you know on a friday head off uh to wherever they're going in ireland and set up for the weekend and uh yeah it's just it's get sorted so it's it's quite something that i think I, I sometimes find difficulty finding the words to describe what road racing in ireland is and i think i think not necessarily is something that you see i think it's, it's something that you feel and i think if you go to an event see what it's all about so ali can we just um look at um that that day in 2018 and just um maybe just put a bit of context around it because um indeed I think the conditions were very poor, as you, as I've heard you speak of, that the, the, there was a lot of rain, that the road was quite wet, there's quite a lot of oil on the road, um, and indeed you were doing, indeed maybe a safety lap just to just to see what the conditions were like. Could you maybe just unpack the day and and, and what happened on the day? Yeah, so the day um, it was race day of the Armoy Road Races. Um, and the day before, uh, so we'd had, that was 2018, the summer was absolutely incredible. I think we'd had somewhere between six and eight weeks of 20 degrees plus every day and no rain. Uh, so it was incredible. And we had the, the, on the Friday, which was the day before we had the practice and an evening race and everything went incredibly well. And, uh, you know, the circuit was brilliant and everybody was just shorts and t-shirts, you know, and ice creams. And it was just awesome. But we knew the forecast was coming in for the, the next day. And sure enough, that evening it started to rain and the rain, the rain was torrential. Like it was absolutely dancing off the road. And I remember riding to the circuit that morning, you know, just thinking there's going to be no racing today. And there was a lot of localized flooding and standing water on the road. And so, yeah, like there's, there's not going to be a lot happening. But with Northern Ireland, you know, the weather can change so often. And if you, if you have two hours of no rain and the circuit, you know, would, would clear to the point where you can run a race. So we had our morning briefing with the medical team. There's myself, the two other traveling paramedics. Um, we got the two vans, which are full of all our equipment. And in each van, we have uh, pre-hospital doctors and paramedics. And very lucky in our team that, you know, we're, we're the probably the only dedicated pre-hospital team for for any sport in, in Ireland. And uh, yeah, most of our most of our doctors and paramedics actually do work on the air ambulance. Um, so we're all highly skilled and, and well trained. So had our morning brief, and then the roads are closed, and then um, various different vehicles then head out to where they're going to be positioned. So we always have one van at the start and finish, and another van halfway around the circuit. To, to be able to reduce response times. 
Um, and do whenever the, the roads close, we head out and we do um, we'll do an inspection up at the circuit to, to see what it's like, make sure everything is as it should be. And we are happy, you know, with the conditions of the circuit. And then typically what you then have is the riders would come out to do their uh, warm-up lap and we'd follow them on the warm-up lap and then they'd line up in the grid, start the race. We'd follow them on that first lap of the race and each traveling medic will stop at a different point in the circuit, <clears throat> you know, again, to reduce that response time. Um, so we, we never follow them around for the full race. It's just for the for the, the first lap and then you know, nothing happens. Then we just head out and regroup at the end of the race. Uh, so yeah, we were just heading around on our inspection lap and there's a section of the course I remember going around and it was very greasy because when you have a dry road for such a long period of time uh, just naturally with all the all the rural use there you know with, with all the the agriculture vehicles that are there lorries and cars going around whenever you get that first big downpour a lot of grease and oil comes to the surface of the tarmac uh, so it's very slippy and that course the year before we'd actually ridden in the wet and it was notoriously greasy just for the area that it's in and the, the agricultural vehicles that, that would operate in that area so we knew it was going to be slippy and sure enough going around you could feel the motorbike like it was it was sketchy you know and we were just going real easy just cruising and again we were just riding around thinking in our heads there's not going to be any racing today. Uh, so we were just, you know, cruising around thinking we'd get back to the start and finish and then just basically sit for a while and wait and then probably be, be told to head home. Um, but just, you know, we, we don't necessarily, like one person leads the group round, but that morning I just happened to be the, the first bike away and the, the two guys were behind me. And there was a section of the circuit where, it road rises up and then it dips and then it rises up again. So it almost creates like a little, uh, a little bomb hole. So um, one of the official cars <clears throat> stopped uh, right in the middle of the, the track in, in that bomb hole. And uh, they, they stopped to speak to a marshal who was walking in the road. And uh, one of our medical vans that was going around had to stop behind it. And because they stopped in the middle of the road, they couldn't go left or right. So that created, you know, a, a blockage in the circuit. And I happened to be the first motorbike over the crest of the hill. And uh, you know, we were doing uh, less than less than 60 miles an hour. And whenever you have such a short space of time to try and stop uh, on a motorbike, you know, it's it's not going to end very well. And through being so greasy. So a combination of factors just led to, to me coming down on the bike before, you know, uh, reaching the van. And uh, actually ended up being with the van first and then the bike came and crushed me against the back of the van um and you know it was the guys behind me were able to, to see all this happening and they were able to you know uh try and stop in time uh so yeah that's that's essentially what happened um i was incredibly unlucky for those sorts of the that set of circumstances to be in place you know, but um, my injuries were so severe that I, I needed medical attention within seconds, not minutes. And in a weird way, you know, you know, colliding with the back of uh, the, our own team medical van, that was the best thing for me, you know, because they were all there immediately with all the equipment. And, you know, they didn't hang around. They got to work. They could recognize just how scarcely ill I was from, from the offset. And 
it's hugely, you know, thanks to their quick actions that, that I'm still here. So Ali, could you speak to the injury load you sustained from, from that? Because uh, quite rightly, as you said, you know, even coming from 60 or even just below 60 miles an hour to zero in such a short space of time, you know, the energy transfer into the body is massive, um, mm. especially if it's an abrupt stop. And ex-patients of mine, um, we've been through and I've interviewed in the past, um, indeed, going at even 40 miles an hour to, to zero, um, albeit straight away, can have a massive impact on the on the body. Could you maybe just speak to the to the injury load and, and the and the catalogue of injuries you did sustain? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it was the massive deceleration, but then I suppose that was complemented by the, the crush injury. You know, from being squashed between the the bumper and the actual motorbike. Um, but yeah, I had a, a minor head injury, which which had me with a loss of consciousness on the scene. Um, nothing showed up with, with any evidence of any any lasting head injury uh, on on the MRI or CTs. Um, I had a fracture of C seven. Um, I had fractures in every vertebrae from T one down to L five, uh, which is is quite a lot. Um, and I had uh, very significant burst fractures of T twelve, L one, and L two vertebrae. And that's where the spinal cord injury was was devastatingly damaged. Um, I had a left-sided pelvic fracture. Um, I had completely shattered the left shoulder blade. I had fractures in the right shoulder blade. Um, I had fractures in the left clavicle. Um, every rib on the right-hand side had one fracture in it. And every rib on the left-hand side had four fractures in it. So I had multiple flail segments. Um, the right lung, uh, I had bilateral hemianthoraces. Um, so both lungs were, were down and hemorrhaging uh, quite significantly. And I also had a splenic laceration. Um, and to top it all off, I also had a um, left-sided brachial plexus injury uh, from it. And off the top of my head, I think that's the list of injuries. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So Ali, you know, that's a massive injury load and, and profile. Could you, um, so you clearly, like you said, lost consciousness. So actually beyond that, I guess the next thing you remember is, is waking up in the ICU, but uh, am I right in thinking? So the medical team got out of the van, which you, which you just hit, they went on to RSIU. So give you a roadside anesthetic and indeed uh, give you thoracostomies. So hot, just holes in the side of your chest to relieve, relieve the pressure and then take you to the trauma uh, center within, in, in Northern Ireland. And and wow, that's that's an in, that's a massive injury load. So once they've done that, the next thing you remember is waking up in the intensive care unit. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. So the medical team on, on scene were amazing. Within six minutes of the collision happening, I had the RSI and thoracostomies done. So six minutes, you know, I think that shows how well drilled the team are. Um, but because my, my chest was so difficult to ventilate with, with the, the fractures there, um, you know, it was such a balancing match for them in terms of keeping me 
keeping me alive with adrenaline and keeping my pressures uh, within range because that, that's what they really struggled with. And then thankfully, you know, uh, their ambulance was able to land and take me because again, if I had to, if I had to go by road uh, to the hospital, it might've been a different outcome because it would have been an extra 30, 40 minutes by road um, rather than by air. Um, but we had an amazing anesthetist on board, you know, he was able to, uh, you know, work, work wonders with the ventilator and, and keep me going. Uh, but yeah, so I, I actually remember everything about that morning of the incident perfectly up until about maybe 10 seconds before the actual collision. But I've been so well informed from the, the entire team as, as to what happened and you know, the full amount of care that I was given and, and everything that happened from then on because naturally, you know, you'd want to know as a, as a medic, you know, and it helped actually my whole process of learning about what had happened to me and dealing with what had happened to me as well. But it was so strange because I remember everything perfectly. And then it was genuinely just like somebody turned the lights off and then flicked them back on. Like there was no time delay. It was just lights out, lights on. And then I was waking up, I think about <clears throat> three days later, um, and it's whenever they just lightened sedation for the first time to see, you know, uh, what, what would happen with my numbers in ICU. But I remember, you know, waking up from a very groggy sleep. And that's what it felt like. And that's essentially what you're in, you know, whenever you're, you're RSI, like you're in a groggy sleep. Um, yeah, I just remember sort of like eyes closed, starting to be aware of the noises around me and, and hearing the beeps of certain machines and people around me. I thought, kind of sounds like hostile machines beeping, you know, that, that unmistakable bing bing bong sound of the machines uh and then i opened my eyes and i was like oh i am in a hospital setting there my vision was a bit blurry initially opening my eyes and i was just like right i'm an icu and something bad happened at the armory races and whilst that was quite alarming to, to, to realize that i started to reassure myself and calm down and, and start to think logically i was like right well if you can piece all that together your brain is functioning you don't have a brain injury and brain injuries are just absolutely devastating um but i was quite happy you know that that, that wasn't the case and it's like i obviously don't know what condition my body's in but we, we'll deal with that when we get to it i just know that i'm compass mentis and i know what's going on and then i could hear my parents talking to me from bedside telling me where i was where i was there obviously they wouldn't have a clue what condition I was going to wake up in. Um, so, yeah, that was that was just such a relief for me to know that they were there, and, you know, that they were okay. Um, and, yeah, then, then uh, you know, my brothers were there. And I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> how did you get over from New Zealand so soon? How long have they been asleep? <laughs> yeah, but... Um, it was it was a great reassurance to me uh, to have my family by my bedside uh, there, and it's like right, well, like whatever's whatever's going to come our way, I know it's going to be all right. Um, but obviously, I, I couldn't really communicate to them, you know, because I was still you know very sedated and you know was still intubated for quite a while. But um, yeah, so they were they were just telling me a little bit about things and explaining things to me. I remember my dad saying, "Oh, yeah, this." Is on the armory circuit immediately just playing the circuit around in my head and I was just trying to think like where in the circuit would that have happened or and again that was more reassurance to me of what I could remember like I could remember my way around the circuit I remember exactly what it looks like you know you've done that many laps there it's it's in your system you know exactly every millimeter of that circuit 
Um, so yeah, that was that was quite an experience. Um, it wasn't a sad or an upsetting experience, if you know what I mean. It was it was one of positivity and reassurance. Um, I knew all that was going to come eventually, uh, and and we would deal with it. But I was just so relieved to have woken up, you know, and, and, and to have had the people that meant the most to me by my bedside. Like, I cannot tell you uh, how nice that feels. But at the same time, whilst I knew my head was okay, I was already being taken care of. There's nothing more I can do. I'm in control of whatever I can be in control of. And the rest is being taken care of by the ICU team. But I was immediately just worried about my family. I was like, right, well, what are they going through? And thinking about it you just need to focus on yourself because that's the only way you're going to be able to help them at this stage. And everything from there, you know, was about focusing on healing and surviving. So Ali, could you speak to the, um, the, the sort of discomfort and or pain you, you were in? Because like you said, you woke up, albeit under sedation with a tube in your mouth, mm. um, down your throat, which, you know, is uncomfortable in and of itself, um, despite sedation. But could you, uh, could you speak to sort of the emerging uh, rehabilitation or indeed convalescence, you know, as you, as you start to recover um, and your, you start to get that sort of nociception back, so, that, so the pain response back? And could you maybe even just speak to, yeah, just how that felt, how that, how that was from your perspective? I remember that so well and, and so clearly. Like, I actually remember everything really clearly in ICU. Um, it took me a while to figure out the sequence of events because sometimes like, you had really clear memories, but they, they weren't necessarily in the right order as such. Um, but, yeah, I can remember uh, whenever I was being extubated, that was whenever I started to really feel pain because uh, I'd had uh, spinal surgery to decompress the spine the spinal cord and to fixate my my uh, vertebrae from l4 i had um seven of my my ribs on the left hand side were plated my collarbone was plated um had the two chest strains in so i had a fair amount going on actually in, in the body but whenever it came to extubation um with all the damage to my chest trying to breathe for myself again that pain was was I, I i don't have a word i don't think there's a word in the english vocabulary that could actually describe the pain um and i remember like the the doctors and nurses were great like they were informing me of every step you know what was happening why and, and like they knew i was a paramedic so they knew i was going to understand more than just layman's terms so they were great like they're really attentive to that so they're actually telling me some um anatomical things in, in in proper language and informing me what medicines i was getting and they were telling me about, you know, I, I was being on these really high doses of morphine after extubation. And I, I've, from mountain biking and, and rugby in the past and everything, you know, I, I've had my fair share of injuries and, and needed morphine. And morphine does nothing for me. It, it, it does nothing for the pain. And it, it does actually make me hallucinate. So I was having, you know, a bad experience with that. So they're pushing these high doses of morphine. And I couldn't communicate because when you've been extubated, like your vocal cords receive a bit of damage and I could remember not being able to talk and I was struggling that much to breathe I, I didn't have um I didn't have the breath in me or or the diaphragmatic energy uh such you know to, to try and speak uh so I was just having to focus on breathing and I was in a dark place then and uh, that was whenever 
the pain was huge. So I was, I was getting the pain, I remember, from the ribs, and I was getting a huge amount of pain from the spine, like down in the damaged area of the lower back. That that pain was was unbelievable. And I was struggling and I was fighting it. And I, I just, nothing I could do or nowhere I could take my mind to was helping the situation. And I know my family were distressed and they were doing everything in, in their power, you know, and, and what they could to try and calm me down and trying to talk to me um, to, to de-escalate my, my distress. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, the, the pain was crazy. But the effort of trying to breathe uh, in lungs that have been reliant on positive pressure ventilation for a while, that, that was that was tough, man. Like That was really tough. It just felt like I was suffocating constantly. And I remember, I remember like, like, like all I wanted was for them to re-intubate me, you know, and I, I was in some way, I remember trying to communicate that to them by, by pointing into my mouth, you know, as, as signing, you know, put a tube in here, please. <laughs> but they were really good at explaining, you know, this is going to be a real challenge for you. But if you can stay off the ventilator, your, your recovery will be 10 times greater than if you have another week on the ventilator. And deep down, I knew that. So I was focusing on that and trying to zone in and go to a special place in, in my head where, you know, I could just try and get through it, you know, just try and survive. But things I remember just getting too great for me and the the challenge of trying to breathe was becoming too much. And I remember getting to a point uh, in, in my thoughts where I, I was ready to give up. You know, I, I, was, I was happy to let go. And I just felt like what I was doing was not sustainable. And um, I wouldn't say it was like, you know, my life flashed before my eyes, but my loans were very much in, in, in the forefront of my mind. And I remember thinking like, you know, I'm, I'm 29. I've done a lot with my life. I've done a lot of good things. I've helped a lot of people in my career. Um, and my family know I've lived a great life. I've, I've traveled with a lot of friends and, and done a lot of good things. So they know that I love them and I know that they love me. And you know, they will they will cope, they'll manage. And I remember just then letting go, giving up. Um, and obviously, you know, I I didn't die, but I blacked out and then came around later and I can't really remember coming around later so whether whether you know something happened or I was given some sort of strong medicine or whatever I'm not sure but yeah that was that was a quite a strange experience to have gone through gosh so Ali you know you 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 pass out you you know you're in immense pain and then you come back around and then could you maybe speak to sort of the semblance of, of rehabilitation from that point? So the traction of starting to appreciate the injury load, uh, appreciate the adaptations you had to make. And um, because I'd, I'd love to navigate that, 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 that next period of rehabilitation, because that will lead on to you're doing now, actually, which is absolutely mm. fantastic. Yeah, so... I actually became aware of the extent of my injuries, you know, whenever I was still on the ventilator, you know, my, my parents were great. They were able to explain it to me and, you know, they're telling me about my injuries um, and, you know, about the spinal cord injury and that there is spinal cord damage and it's, it's most likely not going to be recoverable because they've already seen the, the images, you know, and the spinal surgeon was fantastic with them. Um, this guy called Kyle McDonald, 
Donald, who actually passed away quite recently. Uh, but he was he was at the top of his field, you know, and his explanations and his bedside manner with my parents were hugely helpful. Um, and that fed through to me. Uh, so I became aware of, of my legs not working. And whilst at the very time that was upsetting and, and, and quite devastating, again, I was quick to reassure myself because I had the, the better, say the benefit, but, you know, I've got two cousins who are born with spina bifida and were wheelchair users. and they have exceptional lives. Like they, they've got better lives than most able-bodied people, and they do more than most able-bodied people. And you know, one of them is a, a professional wheelchair basketball player. Um, and yeah, that the year before my accident as well, I'd met a paraplegic motorcycle racer. Um, so even then, I was thinking, well, I know getting back on a motorbike, you know, it's not out of the question. It's, it's possible. So I was thinking about possibilities even then, whilst uh, ventilated, uh, but. Fast forwarding on from that, you know, I spent, I think, about eight weeks in uh, or eight days in intensive care. And then I was into a four or five week period in the uh, spinal fractures ward in, in the Royal and then moved to uh, the rehabilitation center at Musgrave Park Hospital in Belfast, where I spent a number of months there uh, rehabilitating. And thankfully, you know, the the brachial plexus injury in, in my left arm mostly recovered it's not quite 100 percent, but probably about 90 percent. so we worked a lot on that in, in rehab to to get my left arm functioning because you're not going to get these your legs back you need both upper limbs working as good as possible so that was that was a huge focus of my rehab uh, to get that good and learn how to to do things in a whole new way and uh, learn about how you're going to have to adapt not just certain things to adapt, but how you're going to adapt to every single little of your life. The whole thing's changed. Um, the, the what you've been doing before is essentially, you know, torn up, and you have to start from scratch. You know, this is this is how you're going to live. You learn how you're going to mobilize. Are you going to dress yourself? Are you going to wash? Um, are you going to go to the toilet now? And are you going to feed yourself? Are you going to cook? Are you going to shop? everything just completely turned on its head and you have to learn to do everything from you because you wouldn't be able to do any of it the same way as before you can use a computer the same way as before that's about it <laughs> but uh, everything else was was uh, a learning process um so you're essentially learning to live again and how to be independent again uh, or as independent as possible um so yeah that rehab process was yeah, it was challenging, but I feel like with the, the sort of resilience that I had uh, from previous life experiences, you know, certainly the challenges I, I know of going through that, that mountain bike trip in New Zealand, um, that, that gave me a lot of, uh, I think, resilience in terms of physicality, but also mentally, like that mental resilience to be able to, you know, take your mind somewhere where, where you know is a comfortable place and to be able to focus your energy on, on what you're doing and to think rationally and go through all of your thought processes uh, and in terms of things because you're feeling every type of emotion whenever you're, whenever you're going through rehab you know everything is 
every little achievement was also met with uh, that bittersweet element, you know, where, where you, you really achieved something in terms of your progression, but you then immediately realized your limitation of your new life and, and your new ability. Um, so there was a lot of that sort of up, down, up, down uh, type stuff, you know, that, that kind of emotional roller coaster in a way. Um, but whenever you're being steered on that path with such fantastic healthcare staff in the rehab, uh, center and, and the physios, the OTs and, and the nurses and the, the auxiliary staff, absolutely brilliant. You know, they're, they're so experienced and guided that and they, they treat you very much not as a patient. They treat you more as a, like just like a person and a friend, if you know what I mean. So there is a huge difference in feeling from the, the acute hospital to the rehab hospital. And yeah, it felt like you were very much being transitioned into, into that later aspect of your life. So Ali, you go from there, you start to, like you said, piece your life back together. You're starting to learn to dress your stuff again, to everything from, apart from using a computer, you have to relearn. Um, but you also relearned how to ride a motorbike and indeed went further than that. You rode a motorbike on the Amoy circuit, so on the same circuit that you crashed on in, in 2018. Could you sort of maybe speak to, to that and to because that's a very that's very sort of emotional just re remapping the same circuit you you crashed on and had these life-changing injuries on uh could you speak to sort of how that came about the adaptations to the motorbike and indeed what it felt like yeah absolutely um so like i first had that thought you know i was in an icu you know aware of it and then as time went on like you just Whenever you're in hospital recovering long term like that, you do have a lot of uh, time to yourself where you're thinking about things. And as time went on, I became probably more and more uncomfortable with the fact that I hadn't uh, completed that lap. You know, it's like that's, that doesn't feel right. And it was unsettling, you know, to be honest. And I was thinking more about, okay, well, like looking into things and you're googling stuff and, and research or whatever and the paraplegic motorcycle racer that i'd met the year before uh, so he set up a charity um to to help uh disabled motorcycle riders get back to riding motorbikes with adaptions and with the help of others so i knew right okay i am going to move on to one of those courses because i want to learn to ride a bike again i don't want the the riding of a motorbike to have been taken away from me not on my terms you know if i want to stop riding the motorbike i would like to put my hand up and say i'm deciding to stop not because i'm unable um so yeah like i looked you know it's just various times you know throughout hospital you know researching stuff and looking at you know how to adapt a motorbike you know and, and how to how to launch the motorbike how to stop the motorbike and what adaptations you need like the gear shifter being moved up to the handlebars things like that uh, i knew you know what i needed to do and how i was going to do it it just was a matter of letting the right come to me and then i started to have the the target in my head of right okay well the next time why it'll be the one year anniversary of my accident and i had different driving factors to do that the first one was for me very selfish for me i want to do this for me to show what i can do uh not only to myself uh, but that, you know, um, for others. And then I wanted to, I wanted to show it to my family, you know, that I was never going to let anything put me down or, or hold me down. Um, 
and I had reservations about this as well because I knew maybe not all of my family would be entirely keen about me getting on a motorbike ever again, uh, which is just hugely understandable. And I would never want to do something, you know, that, that would upset them or without their backing. Um, but then I found difficult, what the rest of my family found difficult was that because, you know, obviously my dad had been 33 years, you know, on, on the motorbike scene as a doctor and revolutionary in terms of pre-hospital care in Northern Ireland. And then with um, the very tragic death of, of our dear friend and colleague, Dr. John Hines in, in 2015, you know, our medical team had been highlighted a number of times in, in, in the media and the press in Northern Ireland. Um, so whenever my accident happened and it was like our air ambulance had only been commissioned for about a year or so anything that the big red helicopter went to made headlines so my accident made a lot of headlines it was in every newspaper going it was in the newspapers nationally the local newspapers you know where i live and in the town where my dad worked it was headline news and uh, if you googled my name that's all you saw. It was just, you know, a couple of pages deep of news articles about my accident, pictures from the scene of the helicopter. And this was hugely distressing for my parents um, and for the whole family and for me as well. Like, I didn't want people to Google my name and that's what I'm known for, uh, having had a big accident. So uh, that was actually quite a big motivating thing. It's like, right, well, I know that if I go back and I do this, it will regenerate a lot of media attention. And it will change Google for me, essentially, you know, it'll change what I'm knowing about. I want to, I want to rewrite the headlines on my own terms. So I set about doing this, went over to the charity in England, uh, just dad and I, no one there knew who we were. And that was brilliant. You know, it just felt like it was private, you know, and you're just amongst other people who have similar different disabilities to you and, and they're back learning. And you felt like you're really part of something special and you're really feeding off each other's uh, achievements that day you know uh, like there, there was a lady with ms you know who uh was slowly losing the ability to ride a motorbike on the road so she'd come here and you got the helpers there and you're riding around the issues their field and she loved it and it was class to see her her positive her high energy coming from that you know just feeding off it and then it took maybe a while to get going a few wobbles in the first one but you've got everybody there you've got the adapted bike so it's perfectly safe and you just learn, learn to ride a bike in your own terms. And those guys are all experienced. So they're telling you, they're pointing out, okay, this is what you're doing wrong. Do this slightly differently and you get it. And it all worked. Um, and yeah, so it came together and, and I finished that day being able to ride a motorbike. And I, I can't tell you the, the sense of achievement and the happiness and the, the, the emotion between my dad and I, you know, who we'd been on such a journey together uh, with motorbikes in our lives. And this was another huge milestone. And it was, it was special. It, it's, let me feel one side right now talking about it again. Uh, it, was, it was awesome. And yeah, I, I knew right, okay, this is, this is a goer. Let's make this happen. So on the flight home, I was already <laughs> looking up uh, motorbikes on Gumtree, you know, to see what, what could I buy to, to adapt. And I ended up being able to buy the, the same motorbike that I'd had the accident on and got the adaptions, got it all sorted out with the help of some very good people uh, in, in the motorcycling community here in Northern Ireland. And we went for a test day at the Bishop's Court uh, motorsport track here in Northern Ireland. And 
yeah, that was class. You know, I was able to ride around and get the hang of the new bike and everything, and it was all going well. And then contacted the organizers and the governing body, and and they permitted me to do a special one-off parade lap before the the start of racing on on race day at the Armoy. And um, yeah, we we pitched up and glorious weather. It was just beautiful, and the crowds were huge. And uh, I was setting off on that lap to have my, my, my two traveling medic colleagues right behind me, the two medical vans behind me. And we went round and um, it was something else. Like there's just, the crowds were massive, uh, standing ovations the whole way around. And like, I could actually, on the slower parts of the track, I could actually hear the people, you know, clapping. I could hear them cheering me. Um, and I was just riding around up with just, you know, all, all my hair standing on end and, and this incredible tingling excitement all over my body. And yeah, that, that was something awesome. And to, to go past uh, the site where the accident actually was, uh, was, was cathartic and, and refreshing and then get around and to, to make the last turn and then start to, to head for the line. And, you know, they, they had a checkered flag waiting for me and everybody was there and, uh across the line and just got the bike up on the stand uh popped a bottle of champagne and spread it over everyone <laughs> so oh, that was huge and yeah I, I was able to achieve what i wanted but one, one of the one of the main driving factors which i didn't mention is that you know it's such a close-knit community in terms of motorcycle racing and, and, and our medical team we are very close together like we're all very good friends um and i can't imagine what they would have had to go through treating me you know treating one of your own like that's that's got to be i think every every medic's worst nightmare is having to treat one of your own and uh, they knew there was a very real chance that i wasn't going to make it uh but i don't think they ever gave up any hope but i knew that coming up to the armway again uh it was going to be filled with a lot of tough and emotional memories uh, for them. And I didn't want that to be a lasting thing. I want them to be able to enjoy the Armoy. I wanted to change that. You know, I wanted to give something back to them to show them what they've given me. Um, and yeah, completing that lap now, um, every single year when it comes around to that event, when it comes around to the, the anniversary of the accident, you know, we're celebrating, not only are we celebrating the fact that I survived and what a lot of people did for me uh, to put me in the position where I am today, but we're celebrating what I was able to achieve a year on, you know, and completely change that date for, for everybody. And every year, you know, we, we make sure we, we have a nice bottle on ice and uh, we celebrate it. And it's a day that there will always be sadness and, and, and a bit of... Uh, a bit of emotion around that day. The overriding day is, is happiness, you know, and that we're able to move on with our lives. And, you know, we think about what our lives are now, not what they could have been. So Ali, could we just fast forward to, to what you're doing now? Because um, the, 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 the actual adaptations 
Um, and indeed the refocus has been profound and you have sort of massively got into cycling, hand to hand cycling and really realigned your perspectives. But also, you know, you, you've, you've maintained um, your role as a paramedic. So indeed, you're still, still, still working as a paramedic, which is fantastic. And you, you, you've got a major focus on hand cycling. Could you maybe speak to those two and sort mm. of the, the realignment of focus now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think as part of your, your rehabilitation process, you know, when you're going through, you just want to be as active. Well, I find I just wanted to be as active as possible. I wanted to do loads of things. So sports wise, you know, I, there was um, disability sport in Northern Ireland are, are a great uh, charitable organization and, and they help everybody with disabilities. So they come into the rehab center once a week to uh, take you through different activities and, uh, and to see about what sports you might be getting interested in. So there is a brand new local wheelchair basketball club, uh, you know, uh, to me that we were setting up and with my cousins having played it before, everyone was like, oh yeah, go on, like, you, you'll be good at it, you know, you'll be good as your cousins. I was never, like, people I've played rugby with or football with, you know, would say it before, like, I was never great at catching or passing the ball. And uh, yeah, like, the, despite losing a bunch of my legs, I, I didn't get any superpower being able to do that. So <laughs> I was okay at the basketball, but it uh, wasn't great. But I tried hard, you know, and I loved it. The crack was mighty, uh, but it was quite hard on the back. So I, I stopped that because it was causing too much pain for, for my back. Um, and I tried hand cycling. I knew I was always going to get into the hand cycling at some stage. And tried it once. I enjoyed it. But it was a little bit weird to wrap my hand around my head around it because it was cycling, but it wasn't the same. And then I tried it again the second time. Oh man, I fell in love with it all over again. Like it was class. So got myself, you know, this this old beat up hand cycle, and, and the hand cycles are not cheap, you know. So like money, money doesn't go very far with hand cycles. But I got into this thing and I was I was in it quite regularly and just really enjoying it. And then um I had a friend actually, you know, a friend who who I we became friends through rehab, and uh, he was a top level triathlete uh, before, so he was getting into uh, para triathlon after his accident, you know, and, and he was getting a racing hand cycle and seeing him getting into it, so that sort of like spurred me. I thought, yeah, like I wouldn't mind getting into a bit of competition, you know, wouldn't mind going faster, so. Uh, saved up and, and bought a, a racing hand cycle and you know slowly but surely just started getting into it more um and I think you know whenever COVID hit you know I just thought all right well there's not a lot you know you can do so I was just cycling you know every day just doing a little bit every day and before I knew it, I was getting a bit fitter a bit faster and then I thought well you know, I'm going to be here for a while because of COVID. So let's see what, what races are happening. And sure enough, I think it was like at the very end of 2020, they ran like two, two events. And I was encouraged to go along to it. So I went along and I just really enjoyed it. And I did a lot better than what I thought I would. So I thought I'll train over the winter and get ready for the next year, which was 2021. And yeah, whenever the racing started, you know, I started to do quite well. Like my times were getting quicker and, um, yeah, so I, I ended up getting on to the paracycling development squad for Ireland and uh, did my first international race in October last year in Spain and uh, managed to get a double podium. So I was uh, pretty, pretty stoked. Up. I, I kind of benefited in a way, you know, it was, wasn't long after the Paralympics. So a lot of the, the top guys, like they were having a break. So it wasn't the strongest field, but 
either way, you, you'll take an international podium when it comes your way. <laughs> so that was mega. Um, and yeah, I've just gotten into it more and more. And I've now got a coach and I've been training very hard over the winter. And I've got a lot of a lot of big races coming up. So next week, I actually head off to Portugal for a training camp uh, to prepare for the, the first round of the UCI World Cup of the, the season. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that and pretty driven for it. And uh, yeah, thankfully, like, uh, you know, work, they, they've been really, really flexible and really supportive about it. So I, I was able to start back as a paramedic with the London Ambulance Service. And really, in a way, COVID kind of benefited me because so much was being done remotely. Um, so just because I'm based in Northern Ireland doesn't mean you have to be working remotely in London. So uh, they sent me over uh, a laptop and the various IT access that I needed to, to be able to do uh, jobs. It took me a while to, to find what role was going to be suitable for me. And, and I work for the, the LAS maternity team. And uh, yeah, it, it's been a real shift in terms of like my, my pre-hospital focus, you know, from very much being critical care and trauma, you know, to now uh, medical and maternal. And I've actually really enjoyed learning about that more and more and working with uh, the midwives in, in the LAS. Um, you know, we got something really good going and a really good balance of opinions. And, you know, like the, the crack's great. Like they're a really good bunch to work with. And, and I actually really enjoy that role uh, with them. And they've been so supportive in terms of allowing me the, the flexibility to to train. And as well, like, unfortunately, with my, my spinal injury, I, I get quite a lot of pain when I'm sat upright for too long. So in terms of like being able to balance that and working from home, you know, I can maybe have do a couple of hours uh, on the computer and then have a lie down for an hour to rest the back and then get up and finish the working day. So like that's been that's been absolutely fantastic. I feel really, really fortunate to have that position. So Ali, just um, as you have sort of navigated some fantastic um, races and like you said, some some, uh, some really aspirational goals uh, within your rehabilitation. And you said uh, you're a registered HCC paramedic working for London Ambulance Service, which is absolutely fantastic. Could you, and you've got a really clear goal, you know, you've got some goals, you've got some uh, some really aspirational targets to meet, which I think is fantastic as well, because that really helps you motivate you to to go out and train and to really focus the mind, which I think is 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 great. Could you maybe just speak to some take-home messages as we sort of come into land, if that's if that's okay, just for, for people listening to this, just around, yeah, just around your resilient journey and the resilience you've shown and indeed the tenacity and the goal setting and just the importance of looking forwards, falling forwards, so not being afraid to fail and or push forward, but and anything else you've sort of learned along the journey. Yeah, absolutely. You said it interesting whether you're not being afraid to fail. You know, I feel that loads of things, you know, throughout not just my life, but certainly in terms of this whole uh, rehabilitation or, or um, process of moving on from, from injury and disability, you know, you're going to fail more times than you succeed. Uh, so don't get hung up on it. You know, just enjoy the success whenever it comes your way um, and be proud of what you've just achieved because you know failures do make success taste so much sweeter um i i, I very much feel that uh, resilience is the main thing that 
was probably in my favor throughout the, the, the entire process of my adversity. And I think as well, people, people, everyone should really be aware adversity is coming to your life at some stage. Everybody goes through it. Um, it'll come in various different forms. Some people go through life with a much tougher deal than others. Um, I certainly don't feel like I'm necessarily, you know, worse off than everybody else. You know, I feel like there's many people who've got, you know, worse off circumstances than me. Um, but I think every human, every individual does have a much deeper level of resilience than you are ever aware of uh, until you are put to that situation. You can actually take your mindset to a much deeper level than, than what you ever felt was capable and you're a hell of a lot stronger than what you think you are or what you think you'd be able to deal with. Um, but in a way, you only realize that, I think, whenever something so serious happens, that a lot of the little things just become totally insignificant. Um, you know, so all the little daily worries or anxieties anybody may have whenever I think something like this that, that comes along, it just you have to drop all of that and you need to entirely focus on, on what you're dealing with. That's what's going to get you through. And you, you have that there. Like it's, you know, you, your bank of reserve is greater than what you'll ever know. And I think, you know, the more you speak to people, like one of the things, obviously, like you, since being disabled, you know, you're, you're disability sport or you see people, you know, with different disabilities and you're chatting to them and you, you compare notes as well. You can learn stuff from other people and they can learn stuff from you and, you meet another wheelchair user, like they get in and out of a car, maybe completely differently to you. You know, you might think, oh, all right, well, the way you do it's easier. I'm going to try it out. And you, you learn. So you're comparing notes and experiences as well, you know, and, and, and how people deal with things and what got them through those times. Um, yeah, like it's fascinating. I think the strength of the, the, the human mind, you know, what, what it can really cope with. Um, and I feel very fortunate that the upbringing that I had where I've always been a, a decent judge of character, had a very balanced opinion on things um, and growing up appreciative of what, what I've got around me and not really taking anything for granted. Um, and growing up in, in the healthcare environment, I suppose, like, you know, with, with my family being medical, you know, and, and you see that and you're exposed to it. And yeah, like all those things have really helped me in, in terms of being a stronger character. Um, but certainly, I think having come through, through this whole uh, major trauma, uh, spinal cord injury, and, and rehabilitation process, I feel like I'm, I mean, stronger now in terms of my own self, and I'm comfortable in myself now. That was something I kind of struggled with as well. After, like, I wasn't fully comfortable in the first year or two after as a wheelchair user. You know, I felt like, how do people see me? People are, are people looking at me? What were their opinions of me whenever they see me going around? Like, where they see me struggling? you know, out pushing, you know, and then you, like, you come to something like a, a shop that has a step in it and then you're struggling to get in and out of it and you just feel embarrassed, you know, because you're, you're awkward in society. Uh, but I've been able to work through all of that and get past it. And I'm, I'm so comfortable with who I am and the way that I am at the minute, you know, and I've got this, you know, really nice confidence that I can go out in society now and I can try these things and I'm not afraid of failure in, in front of others. And yeah, I know that you feel it once, maybe you feel it twice, but you'd probably get it the third time, uh, whether it's getting in and out of a shop by a different method or 
you know, whatever, uh, all, all the little things in life or just something as much now as uh, how to get something from the top shelf in a shop, <laughs> which is something I never struggled with, you know, being six foot four. So that's been, that was a, a bit of an adjustment process. Um, but I, I think my take home message is that if you, you find yourself suffering some sort of a major adversity in life, you'd be surprised how strong you actually are. Listen, that's profound, Ali. And, you know, your life is a testimony to that, to that very point. And your, your actions are certainly a testimony to that point as well. Uh, just through, you know, your journey from through rehabilitation, but also your, your perspective journey into, into some fantastic hand cycling and indeed uh, tournaments and uh, competitions. So I'll be watching with, um with sort of bated breath as to how 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 you do and how you perform but also just just like you were saying before you know offline enjoying the ride enjoying the journey along the way as well just enjoying the challenge and enjoying the people you meet um along along the way in that journey but i just want to thank you ali for your last hour and a bit because it's been profound uh your story is profound and it's profoundly encouraging as well Good. Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully that's a benefit to some people and uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a real privilege to speak with you. You're listening to the pre-hospital care podcast on the Medics Academy network.
You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.